The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Everything that touches a Formula One car has an impact on performance, even something as seemingly straightforward as paint. But F1 being F1, the paint technology used is far from simple and is just another area where a competitive advantage can be found. We talked to Mark Turner from Silverstone Paint Technology and Seamless Digital to reveal the secrets of paint in F1. We also look forward to High Altitude Mexico City and discuss the impact that has on the aerodynamics of the cars and answer a listener question about a potential brake-by-wire handbrake system. Well, we're back again for another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, but far more importantly, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, a man responsible for Grand Prix winning machinery who has seen it all in F1 multiple times, you'd have to say. So how's life, Gary? Yeah, life's good. Uh, sun's shining and um, looking forward to uh, to Mexico, really, because it's, you know, something, it's something that's a bit different. But I, I did enjoy the race in Austin. You know, it had its uh, its ups and downs as the event went on. Um it was a, a big shunt with Alonso and and, um, and um, Stroll. I mean, that was the bit I was a bit, a bit dubious about was the car just seemed to stay there for quite a long time in the air with the front end up. It didn't it didn't change its attitude too much. And you know, when you consider that uh, the amount of downforce those cars produce and the amount of weight that was on that front of that car that it was able to float for the length of the time it did, it wasn't that far from from going over backwards. So it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be looked at a little bit carefully because there's something going on there. You know, obviously we, we've got all this low nose stuff and that stopped cars from flying through the air, but it did fly through the air. When you get a front wheel contact with a rear wheel contact, you're going to roll up over the top of it. And uh, it did take half the front wing off, which was lucky. It was only half, I suppose. If the other half had gone off as well, you would probably have had a, a situation where the car could have flipped over backwards, which was a very different circumstances. So good race. Um, someone to learn about basically there from that accident I think so need to look at it but uh, yeah looking forward to Mexico yeah it's one of those crashes that could have been much worse a small group of us went and had a chat to Alonso a few hours after the race about it and he said that because he wasn't 100% sure exactly where he was when he was launched when he was in the air he thought he was going into the fence and he thought he was going to have like an IndyCar style accident where it catches in the fencing and spins around so he said he was quite relieved when he felt it land first yeah. so it's one of those ones that could have been uh, an awful lot uh, awful lot worse yeah there was there was also an access road there so you know a little bit more to the left and it, could, it would have uh, there's a fairly abrupt piece of barrier there that curves around into that access road so you know with all these sort of things that was a typical example of luck being on the side of the uh, the driver drivers um but you can't rely on luck forever so as i say that's the most important thing that they look at it very closely about that as i say the access road and the end of that barrier and also the fact that uh, you know the car did launch and did float in my book it did it floated for a long time and you know you'd, you'd obviously imagine at that point in time it's obviously get, getting off the throttle and any sensible person would be getting on the brake I know you have to do it all very quickly, but that puts the torque on to bring the car back down again. And the car didn't want to come back down again. So it was aerodynamically floating at that point in time. So uh, interesting. Just, as I say, you need to learn something from it. Well, as always, all these incidents are studied by the FIA, so there may be some lessons to be learned there. But as always on this podcast, we're going to give you, Gary, the chance to have a free choice of topic for the first part of the discussion. So what's on your mind from the world of F1 tech? 
Well, I think it is looking forward to Mexico, and it is the you know it's the first time the altitude. It's um, obviously a very different circuit as far as that's concerned. Um, two thousand two hundred odd meters above sea level, um, which is a you know as high as they go really. Uh, that the, the races the races are at so it's very different as far as that all that's concerned it's you know air density is you know around about 80 percent of what it would be uh, at sea level so you know taking the basic principles of things the, the cars don't produce the downforce uh, that they would do so the teams will relatively run a wing setup or look at running a wing setup that is gives 20 percent more downforce than what they theoretically would want around a circuit without characteristics um at sea level so it's one of those where it's you know quite difficult more difficult to get the compromise between that straight line speed and the downforce you need and you know downforce only relative because at the low speed you know you still don't generate the downforce a lot of low speed corners there so you you only generate the downforce at the square of the speed no matter what altitude you're at so Although you put more, more, more wing on to get more downforce, you know it's it's still a reduced number down at the low at the low end of the speed. So, it'd be difficult for that, but the teams are used to it. It's it's been like that forever. Um, you can't really change anything as far as that's concerned. These cars, again, looking just at it aerodynamically at the moment, these cars will be quite different from last year's. You know, we we've we've always had what we might call ground effect. Even if it was a flat bottom car with a diffuser, it still generated downforce from underneath the car. These cars generate a lot more downforce from underneath the car. They've got a more aggressive diffuser, a more aggressive underfloor. Um, so, you know, the, the, the downforce produced using the Venturi effect, I think you might call it, of the underfloor compared to in the past is a, is a much bigger high percentage. And that will, you know, that'll be slightly different with uh, with um, the altitude. It'll be it'll, it's, it's as I say, it's always been like that because you've still produced downforce from the underfloor. So it's not new. It's just a little bit slightly different because you're producing a bigger a bigger uh, percentage of it. So I think the teams that are working on the underfloor and understanding the underfloor best will be uh, in a better position in in Mexico. But then uh, you know we we take on that sort of same atmospheric pressure and go to to uh, the uh, engine, I mean, turbocharged, obviously. Um, we've been there for a few years now, and it's the fact that the the cars aerodynamically will have less downforce and less drag, but basically they can have more or less the same horsepower because the turbo just has to work a bit harder. And that is, obviously, if you have the headroom and the turbo function on a given engine to actually allow it to work harder. Not all the teams have, not all the engine manufacturers have. And that's where it stands out a little bit because, you know, we look at the uh, the different power units now from, you know, Renault, Honda, Ferrari and Mercedes. And we say, well, they're all, they're all much of a muchness, to be honest. You know, maybe a little bit in it here and there, a little bit in the drivability. But um, it's this is the first circuit where you'll sort of, the, the turbo system becomes a much bigger priority. And really, you know, there, there is a, a an RPM, maximum RPM for the turbo of 125,000 RPM. I don't really know how many people run near that, but the only way to get the same, or to get the boost pressure to come up with the, with the um, altitude is to run the turbo faster because you can't suddenly put on a, you know, a bigger turbo or change the gearing of it or anything. So it's just you've got to run the, the turbo a bit faster uh, than you normally do. 
as long as you've got the headroom in that RPM, then that's okay. If you haven't got the headroom in that RPM, then it's it's not okay. And in the past, we believed that Honda sort of ran a, a larger turbo than most other teams. Um, with larger turbo, you run a little bit less RPM. If they still do that, then they would have more headroom in that RPM uh, to, to allow it to run a bit harder. So it's, that's going to be an interesting thing for me because it's going to be about the... Um, getting the, the the turbo working and getting the MGU uh, H to give you that free electrical charge that you can have from it um, like normal at normal circuits and that's not going to be easy for the teams but as I say they have experience of it it's not new but you know we know Ferrari have got a different power unit package and turbo package this year than they had last year so probably Ferrari have got the biggest learning curve coming but I'm sure all of the teams all of the engine manufacturers have got something fairly different this year to last year. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting race. New challenge. Is there any way to judge the form? The only race at any particular altitude we've had this year was Austria. That's just under 700 metres, so nowhere near the altitude of, uh, of Mexico City. But there we had Red Bull were faster over a single lap, but Ferrari had the advantage on race pace on on tire deck, which obviously isn't really relevant to altitude. So, do you think there's any form book for this altitude, or is it all out the window given the new cars for this year? Um, I don't think there's any real basis for making a big a big prediction as to, to the altitude. The only thing I would say is that in the past, I think Red Bull handled it better than others. They maybe didn't have as good a car at the time, but they came out of, of uh, Mexico with pretty good results in the past. So whatever way they have gone about it with their their package, their understanding, um, then you know I think that'll be relative this year as well. But it's more it's it's more going to be down to um, just I suppose adapting to the to the altitude with the new engine configurations. And as I say one look I look forward to is is uh, Ferrari because as I say they they did move on a lot in in their engine performance this year um, and I'm sure a lot of that is down to the turbo and how they how they use it so I think this is the first time we'll sort of be able to separate the engine a little bit from being just the 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 function of the no, of the normally aspirated part of the engine I suppose to the turbo and then on to the MGUH uh, uh, harvesting system so I think it's it's one of those sort of things that we we will get a different dimension, a, a different underst- understanding. Uh, yeah, we'll get a different understanding of, of how the teams work their, their engine a bit more after Mexico than we have before we go there. It's an interesting point you make about how well Red Bull runs there because obviously they won last time with the Honda engine, but they also won twice with the Renault engine in 17 and 18 with Max Verstappen. So they have got a track record there with two different engine suppliers. So I guess it is an interesting test of how much of that is team being particularly clever with how they run the engine because th- there are a lot of tricks and, and ways you can maximise the use of that energy. Yeah, there is. And as I say, that's that's the, the thing about it. It's not just about about how much you can produce. It's about how you use it and where you use it. And also, I think in the past, the Red Bull um, was very good over the curbs. The couple of chicanes there were clipping the curbs, you know, riding the curbs is very important. And they were very good at doing that. I'm not so sure they'll be as good this year as, the, as they were then because these cars are very, very different with the suspension stiffness. And we do get a lot of talk about um, the the Red Bull um, 
being able to drop the rear ride height and reduce drag and all that sort of stuff. I'm sure they do. I'm sure every team tries to. I mean, we saw um, a couple of years ago, we saw Mercedes with that, you know, whatever system they had on there, uh, being able to drop the rear ride height at a certain speed quicker than normally. And I, I did an article on it about it being a mechanical system. That basically, the ratio just goes into a folding rate at some point. Um, so it sort of goes over center, I think you might call it. And I wouldn't be surprised this year, the, you know, the, the, the suspensions need to all be mechanical. And I wouldn't be surprised if Red Bull are doing the same thing. And it's one of the reasons why they went to a pushrod rear, because there's more room to do stuff if you've got a pushrod rear, because you're doing most of that um, linkage for the where the pushrod joins the, the, the rocker. You're doing that sort of work uh, above the gearbox where it joins onto the top of the torsion bar. So it would be easier to get a, a geometry that you could a geometry there that between those two components that you can probably have a fiddle with easily to just make sure it's happening at the right point. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised again if Red Bull are up to that sort of thing, which are fully legal. It's all right, you know, you can do it. Uh, it just means, as I say, you need the the correct geometry where the the push rods joins the rocker, the rocker joins the the torsion bar, so that you can. Uh, let it fall, the rate fall at a certain point in time and let the rear ride height um, drop. And again, as I say, the cars do run stiffer this year, so over the curbs has not been as nice a cruise as it was in, in years gone past. But right at the minute, you'd say Ferrari were probably fairly good at riding the curbs, whereas Red Bull, you know, they, they don't look quite as good as they did at the beginning of the year. Ferrari look better than they did at the beginning of the year, but Ferrari look as though they're degrading the tyres a little bit more during the race now than they were at the beginning of the year. So it's, it's about where you head with your setup and your balance of the car as the season's gone by, how you learn about it. And it's a compromise between, you know, Saturday afternoon and how you can get a lap out of new tyres, get them working properly. And then Sunday afternoon, how you can get five extra laps out of a used set of tyres. And uh, that's the compromise that every team has to make, to be honest. And I, I don't know where I'd sort of line it up at at the moment, to be honest. So I think that... Um, they're all pretty much much of a muchness. We saw in the last race in, in Austin that you know Hamilton ran into a bit of tyre problems right at the end. I think that was more overheating the rears from challenging, um, trying to fight off Max Verstappen. So I think it was overheating the rears because the rears definitely gave up very quickly. So I think he just got them overheated and basically he didn't really care over the last couple of laps. He just let it spin. Um, so I don't think that Mercedes were are as bad on the tyres as they looked in Austin. It was just a set of circumstances that brought it to them. Well, our main topic on this podcast is one that's not obviously technical, but like anything that's attached to the car, it does have a significance, namely paint. So as a technical director, Gary, how much thought did you give to paint technology? Um, well, actually, you know, looking back at it now, nothing, I suppose you might call it, because we always wanted the cars to look good. Um, and we, you know, we painted the car and then we put decals everywhere. And Eddie was always very good at bringing in some decals, even though they didn't come with much money. There was lots of them. Um, so, you know, if you look, you look back at it now, you probably wouldn't have done that. You'd have probably... Um, not painted under the decals and that saved some weight. But weight wasn't such a big problem back then. I mean, we were building cars that were uh, 40, 50, maybe even 60 kilograms under the, the minimum weight limit and then putting ballast underneath the car. So you weren't too excited about 
about saving a few grams here and there. Obviously, the more you could save up high, then you could put more down low, and the and the uh, the center of gravity would be lower. But um, then it was about nice looking cars, I suppose you might call it, because that attracted sponsors. But now it's a completely different deal. I mean, the paints and the thickness of the paints and the the detail that's going into it is just. It's a major, major part of the car now. Surface finishes, you know, uh, lower drag surface finishes. Everybody's trying everything to get that last little bit out of it. And, um, you know, again, if you can uh, if you can do a good job on it, you can bring in more sponsorship maybe because, you know, it all looks good. And uh, but there's only a certain amount of area on the car. So there's some new systems coming, up, coming around, as we've seen, that uh, might allow us to get more surface area on the car very quickly. Well, that's the one of the reasons we're talking about this topic, in fact, is because in Austin last weekend, McLaren did trial that dynamic branding technology, which was featured in the television coverage. How much impact do you think that could have? As you say, as a technical director, a big part of it was if the car looked good, you can help attract more sponsors. And obviously, more sponsors should mean more development budget, which is the, the bottom line that, uh, that would appeal to anyone in the technical department. So do, do you think that's uh, an exciting technology that's going to take hold? Well, it's an exciting technology for sure. Um, does it take hold? It's all it's all the compromise. It, it's the the complexity that it brings with it. You know, these these cars are, are seriously complex anyway. So the last thing you need is another bucket load of stuff put on it um, to to make that you know more difficult. So as long as it can come as a you know a package that functions and it's uh, efficient as far as weight's concerned then that's okay. Obviously, commercial departments will always push to be able to do some trick with sponsorship because that's what gets the the uh, column inches and the, and the TV um, minutes. You know, if you can do something and it does change the, the sponsor because it's a certain set of circumstances, then fine. Um, if you can sell it so that you're, you know, the, the stuff around your halo is a certain thing in the garage and a different thing on the track, um, and you've got a sponsor that's willing to agree to that, then fine. It's like football, you know, all that stuff down the sides of the pitch and that they have multiple sponsors there now because there's only a certain amount of surface area. So, yeah, as long as it can come as a as a package that's efficient weight-wise and complexity-wise, then I see no reason why it won't be become the thing of the normal thing for, you know, a couple of three years' time. And the final thing I have to ask about paint is how much performance was contributed to the jordan 191 by that green paint job because it's it's a well-remembered car partly because it was very successful and partly because it was such a good looking one yeah i mean ian hutchison was the guy that did the artwork for it um and he did a very very good job and it, it did look good but it, you know it's all relative to who your sponsor is what the car has to you know needs to look like we were lucky that it needed to look green because of the fuji coming in and we were irish and the two blended together so all that stuff, you know, it worked out a, an ideal set of circumstances. But the car, by the car looking good, it did bring us in money. And that, you know, that meant we existed, which was the most important thing. And I think that, you know, one thing I've always said is if, if you've got someone that has to be ugly, but it's fast, that's okay. But if it's ugly and it's not fast, then forget about it. You, you really want the mechanics... You know the mechanics to polish, give it that extra polish, you know, give it that extra look up because during that period you'll see maybe a body fastener that isn't quite fitted right, or something moving on the body fastening or something, and you'll fix it. Whereas if the mechanics just want to cover it because it, it's an atrocious looking beast, then um, 
you know, it doesn't get that dedication. But I think nice cars bring do bring people want to be associated with them. Sponsors want to be associated with them. So it brings you in some money, and that in the long term helps you to exist. Yeah, and you only need to look at some of the other cars that appeared in that era in the late 80s and early 90s to say that there are a few fellow small teams at that time that could have learned from that need of the car to, to look good as there were some very angular beasts turned up. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Well, our interview today is with Mark Turner, a former colleague of Gary's at Jordan back in the day where he worked as a vehicle dynamics technician, but his career subsequently took a different turn, co-founding Silverstone Paint Technology in 2008. While you might not have heard of Silverstone Paint Technology, it's a company that works with the majority of the F1 grid, so you'll certainly have seen its products. But connected to that, Mark is also the founder of Seamless Digital, which partnered with McLaren to bring the dynamic branding technology that you will have seen trialled on Friday at the US Grand Prix. McLaren described that as a game-changing technology one that allows the branding and messaging on the car to be changed at any point. So we were delighted to have the chance to speak to Mark both about that technology and the wider topic of paint technology in F1. Mark, um, it's a long time really since we worked together at Jordan when you were in the R&D department. Um, So what led you from from that basically to looking at paint technologies and and the in-depth requirement for a Formula 1 car? Um, it was, it was actually, it came about by accident in a way, um, the, the sort of mentality that, that's, um, kind of ground into you in F1 is very much performance, performance orientated and analytical driven. Um, and that ethos is something, you know, can be applied to any, any field. And, and I'll be honest, we inadvertently, um, fell into the paint sector. Uh, it was just a part of a part of um, while we were while we were building cars. Actually, it was a part of the business that um, we wanted to get control over. So we ended up purchasing a, a small paint business, um, and then some of my former colleagues still in F one contacted us and asked for assistance, and we ended up using our paint facility to to actually paint and and um and, and assist within the world of f1 and that sort of pulled us back into it uh but with but with a lot of the a lot of the sort of structure and and um discipline that that had been driven into us over the years of working in it like i've only really ever worked in um in f1 uh and in and around f1 basically so so yeah, it was taking that ethos and that principle into the paint world was actually really exciting and interesting. And it's it's how do you how do you maintain a consistent finish of process? How do you maintain discipline? So nothing just happens, you know. Like when something fails on a car, there's an investigation and a and and a redesign or a rework. That kind of ethos wasn't around really in the paint side of things. Um, certainly with the in-house facilities within these big teams, they already had that kind of working process, but in the commercial world, that certainly wasn't the case. So it was quite interesting to be able to apply those kind of principles to 
to a paint business and and that's that's effectively what we started to do was was really you know just taking our understanding from from r d and from from you know working in in f1 and applying it to another sector um, and that's that's how that's how we sort of stumbled into it and then and then you know we became obsessively detail driven and and that sort of led us to spread out across the you know across the sport to the way we are now when we when we first released the the Jordan one nine one or as it was called then a nine eleven, which Porsche didn't like much, um, it was in it was in raw carbon. It was black, um, and basically we did all our testing during that period, and um, it was quite funny because when we did get the car painted, which had a you know pretty nice color scheme, but it was quite complicated. Um, we added about four kilograms, I think it was maybe even five kilograms of paint to the car. The guy we had painted then, um, it was very good. He loved very, very good finishes, but that meant weight. Um, so where do you think your technology has taken? I mean, if you look at the early 2000s, obviously it was maybe a bit less than five kilograms then. Mm-hmm. Um, but where do you think your technology has taken that weight gain or weight loss? So the, the yeah, the, 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 the overall paint weights are still, are still significant. Again, often overlooked, but significant. Um, yeah, you, you, you're certainly... Last season, you were certainly seeing cars in the three kilo range uh, on the grid. Again, it's we we've we've just about hit a, a sub one kilo paint drop to a thousand grams. Um, and again, it's you, there's a, there's obviously a, a, equally a trade off. Like it's never going to be you're trying to it's never going to be a, a flat piece of glass because it's because you've got the core materials and the composite and it's a single you know single ply of material then a core and a single ply. So you'll you'll have like a honeycomb impression over it. So really, we're trying to work with products that that aren't filling things. We're not trying to cover up and conceal. We're trying to you know we're trying to add a, a brand aesthetic to the car whilst whilst doing it in the the least impactful way from a performance perspective. So you know you've got to be considerate of like leading arrow edges and critical aero surfaces where you, you can't afford to have a transition or a, um, you've got to figure out how you're, how you're ending a, a paint line and a transition line and also just ultimately avoiding areas that, that have critical detail in that you know you're going you're gonna to add some, um, some definition to which you aren't necessarily going to want. But we see, um, you know, the typical weight is obviously there are there is a level you're going to put on there, as you say, it can be under a kilogram now. Um, we see Ferrari and, and Red Bull, they run sort of the matte finish um, against some other cars which run the gloss finish. Is there any, is that the advantage of, the, of that, the weight, the weight advantage? Is it something to do with the weight or is there, is there a surface uh, difference there that you're looking at? Um, there is a mass advantage because you can, ultimately you can, you can trim everything out of a coating if it's remaining matte, there are a lot of characteristics you have to achieve with a gloss coating. Um, you know, ultimately that product has to flow out in a nice, consistent way, and then you, and then typically you'll flat and polish it. Um, so you've got to, you've got to have put enough product on there to do that. Uh, in addition to the fact you can't put the, you know, because it's gloss, it's it's got to be a sort of a consistent surface, outer surface. So, so by that very definition, you're putting more product on there, and then the matte coatings. Again, you can really lean out, and 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 effectively, it's probably 
you know, if you go too light on a matte coating, you aren't going to spot it because it's still a matte finish. If you go too light on a gloss coating, it starts to become a bit of a matte finish and it stands out. So you, you, you get a lot more leniency and ultimately you can put a lot less product on. Um, you know, we're, it's significant. It's, it's, um, it's significant percentage points to be gained out of going to a matte finish over a gloss. And have you have you ever been involved in, in trying to create a, a a lower drag finish? I suppose you might call it aerodynamic drag. Um, you know, it was all the rage fifteen years ago, ten years ago, about trying to create a surface that was uh, that basically broke up the laminar flow. Is there any? Do you ever get requests for that? The, the difficulty with with that is is being able to collate your data and test it. So data validation is like the hardest bit there's 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 actually more potential in the cycling world um to validate that data just because just because of the you've got potential access to wind tunnel testing so you can run through a number of of of, and produce a number of frame sets and bikes um and certainly some of the you know some of the bigger teams that, that, that are in that sector have that capability um, it's, it's certainly um, still something we've looked into um, and we continue to work in that kind of field. Um, yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a number of interesting kind of thought processes with that, but ultimately it is, it's kind of a bit of a holy grail of, of um, you know, trying to achieve something like that or looking at like the, you know, shark skin kind of, um, you, you know, there's, there's, all, there's all these kind of principles. Again, aviation is a large... Um, is a large, in- interesting sort of sector that actually has a lot of commonality with motorsport because obviously the, the any mass that's saved in the coating is significant for the aviation sector and it's a large area. And obviously, again, looking for um, drag uh, improvements is, is significant in the aviation industry. So, so yeah, it's something we're looking, we're always working towards. The hardest thing is getting the time to test it and validate the data. Um, that's the biggest biggest challenge really as you say there you've gone into other other disciplines like cycling um so i suppose the technology is a good cross-reference i mean we know that cyclists don't like hairy legs um so it just it just shows a small detail difference that it can make whenever it's you know one man in his bike as such so i suppose it's a big push for for small steps in cycling whereas in motor racing it might be slightly bigger steps yeah i mean the cycling world is actually it's fascinating, like something that we didn't really have a lot of understanding before the 2016 Olympics. We worked with Team GB in the velodrome, um, velodrome bikes that they had custom built by Cervelo. Yeah, that was, again, that was a fascinating project to work on. But you, you understand how obsessed they are with detail. And, and you know, when it's uh, when, when the engine is the person and they have to consume the calories to keep that engine going, that it becomes really, you know, really interesting. And I think we had a, we ended up by the final iteration, we, we iterated the whole way through the process. I think we painted 80 plus bikes for the, for the British team. And by the end, we were down, we were, we were sub 25 grams, 24 and a half grams was one of Bradley Wiggins. Um, and that was again something that we'd worked hard to produce a consistent brand that matched the the clothing. I think the clothing partner might have been Adidas, and I think Stella McCartney was doing the clothing for them. So we had the 
we had all the, like the the lightra stuff that was sent over and we're color mapping it um, and trying to produce a consistent brand that performs well on TV in in images and in the flesh producing that consistent finish and color is, is also really interesting challenge it's like the old the old um uh you know McLarens back in the day where you had the tobacco branding they would look like they were orange and then on TV they would look like they were red and that you know there was no because they were fluoro colors they they no one quite knew what the color was supposed to be so you'd see it in some lights and think that's a different color it's actually the same color but um yeah so the cycling side of things is is fascinating when we we're, we're also incorporating dressing colors into the bikes moving back to racing cars again you were you were mentioning there about the the start of of paint lines and finish of paint lines relative to aerodynamic surfaces um Obviously, that's very critical to to making sure that a, a wing, for example, is working at its maximum. But do you ever get any requests for you know highly stressed aerodynamic surfaces to try to do something on that surface to to generate a, a consistent surface finish? The, the answer that I could probably give is that we for the teams will get we'll, we'll be working with the technical departments for the teams, so we'll get an aero set of aero guidelines from. The drawing office that will highlight areas that that are of interest and areas that they want us to you know to avoid um and ultimately yeah we'll, we'll we'll try and work to incorporate those whilst you know it could be it could be um incorporating a, a rapid prototyped part into a component and trying to produce a consistent service finish it could be um you know it could be trying to, you know, it, maybe not doing that and having it as a, a, a component that's going to be, there's going to be versions and iterations switched through during a race weekend. Um, ultimately, again, the the bit on surface finish side of things, that I, I can't honestly can't go into super specific detail about. But yeah, there, there, there's definitely um, there's definitely some interest in that, and it's not overlooked. Um, it's it's something that teams are definitely interested in and working, you know, working on. Also, they, you, you do quite a lot of work, um, should we call it, under the bonnet to try and protect that lovely paint that we see on top of the bonnet. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do do in that area to obviously protect it from the heat of the exhaust systems and various other parts? Yeah. So um, we worked we, we, during the, the, the onset of the turbo era, we, we started to work on thermal management Kind of coatings and that that ended up leading us down a road where for a while we looked at plating we, effectively we were looking at how do you put something that controls the emissivity of a component so really if we could get an atom's worth of silver deposited consistently over a panel we would get that performance um whilst not increasing the component mass so we We've explored like a number of avenues, but you you, you know it's not just conventional um, paint or coating or thermal kind of coatings. It's it could also be um, you know it can could also be uh, you know you got to look at like chemical deposition, and you're trying to effectively trying to deposit a uh, a coating on there and and doing it by any means possible. Um, so that's kind of kind of where we where we focused on during that era, it's becoming less and less prevalent now because because everyone's, you know, the understanding of how their cars perform and, and the like. In the early days, it was, it was there was a lot more firefighting, 
So you would get like requests of whether you could make something work because something was, you know, maybe on fire. So they were trying to, you know, control the, you know, and manage the the characteristics across the car in different areas. So, um, but yeah, that's 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 effectively we yeah we looked at we explored all areas and that and and like I say it's it's not just you know it's it's chemical deposition really more than paintings. So you're you're effectively trying to get a silver, gold, or aluminium. So like the old McLaren F1 road car had gold heat shields everywhere. Gold's marginally more efficient than silver or aluminium aluminium but effectively what you're trying to do is get a thin layer and, and you don't really want to be using the old the old ways where you would just put a big a load of um gold foil over something because apart from anything the, the gold foil is is quite thick um but you've also got a a, a glue there's a there's a an adhesive element to it which again increases the increases the the sort of mass of that whole assembly people don't consider the fact you know, you've doubled the thickness with the glue layer. And a lot of the time, the data sheets you read for a, for a thickness of a component or a finish doesn't, doesn't include the adhesion, which, which, is, which is already on the tape or whatever. They'll say it's this many microns thick, but in actuality, it's twice as thick because of the, because of the glue. Um, but yeah, so, so it's, it's, worked out, it's worked out well. It's been, that's an interesting set of challenges to try and work within the, that field and produce something that was lightweight. So going back a, a few years, I mean, when I was involved, we used to have the, the decal man. He was the guy who went around the car and made sure all the sponsors' names were on there. And uh, with small teams, it was obviously, you know, there was hundreds of decals going on there for very small money. Um, and it was very difficult to get a, you know, a major sponsor. But I think uh, you've come up with some new solution to all of that now that the teams won't really need so much of a decal man. And we uh, <laughs> we saw it used at the last race. So... What uh, so tell us about that with your new digital technology? So yeah, so we went we sort of went full circle actually on the on the branding. So you're talking about decals now, actually. Uh, yeah, that our aim has always been to flush those in. So when we're doing the livery, we we're trying to get away from having anything put on top. Um, but yeah, the, the evolution on from that was was you know the dynamic branding that that, that was ran in in Austin in FP1 and 2 uh, with the McLaren team so we've been working we've been working on creating a platform and a technology that allows you know allows brands to change to change their messaging or to change the, the display brand in event you know based on situationally relevant kind of uh, triggers so it could be a safety car or it could be a you know you've got a wet weather partner and you want to you know, Gore-Tex appear on the car when it starts to rain or, um, so we were, we were trying to create a flexible platform that the teams could use and, and come up with creative, you know, use case for it. Um, in McLaren's uh, case, it, Google um, took the exclusive option on it. So I think they're using it, um, they're using it for the remainder of the season in uh, FP1 and 2 and and the multi-year deal with, uh, with McLaren. So, I think it, this could potentially be the future for branding on car. Um, obviously, performance, like we've talked about already, is a massive consideration, and and that's really it's really imperative that that's still you know considered. Like these, you know, we want to see cars go racing, and you know, we're all fans of it because there's no way you'd do the job without being a fan of of uh, Formula One. So 
So it's really about picking and choosing the spots where where this technology is applied and ensuring that, you know, the brand and the visuals of the car aren't impacted. Um, and that's what I feel, you know, it's been achieved with McLaren and, and, and yeah, we're excited to see how this technology has continued to be used and adopted within the sport. It's an exciting time for us. Do you see it moving forward? Um, we saw in Suzuka a, a, set of an, a bit of an incident with a, a, um, a rescue vehicle on the track. Pierre Gasly almost hit it. Uh, but we've, we've also got VSCs and safety cars and red flags and different mm -hmm. flag areas. Do you see it as a, becoming a warning system potentially for the FIA to the drivers and in cockpit warning systems? Or is there something that could be used there for that? I mean, the, the big thing that you can put the narrative on and um, you can display whatever messaging you want on it. So it could be used for safety messaging as well as um, commercial messaging. Uh, the big thing, obviously, I'm, I'm unsure whether or not, I think they actually already have they should have clear warnings on their steering wheel. So again, it's we're quite ruthless with with how we see our technology and our platform being used. And it, you know, it, we're always keen that it's an authentic application that's actually required. So are we solving a problem that needs to be solved? So the exciting bit is designing the problem and then solving it. So if it, if it turns out that that problem can be solved, you know, already with something else, then then for us, it's don't run it, save the mass. But ultimately, I think you know, it could be used for safety. It could be used for commercial. It's it's like a it's a platform that we're creating and entrusting the teams and the sport to use, really. So uh, you, you're really fo focusing on it as far as varying sponsorships concerned, I suppose, and, and getting uh, more um, square inches of surface area because you can change the sponsor. We see it. We see it quite a lot in football in the middle of the pitch or whatever. But the, obviously, in a, a racing yeah. car, it's a much more con confined space. What sort of weight penalties are you talking about for a typical uh, change of sponsor? So the um, the crash helmet example that you probably would have seen, uh, you know, in some of the run up to the McLaren running, um, that total system mass is sixteen grams. So it's considerably less than the paint job on the crash helmet is is the, the the full dynamic system with the control with the with the cabling um you know it's 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 really a tiny percentage of the paint weight of a car really um you know the the you know you're, you're talking you know a, an on-car system you're talking 200 grams uh, again depending on on where the future applications are um you know, the likelihood is it'll be, it'll be less than that. You know, if, you, if you're focusing on the halo on the onboard areas, um, some of the halo mock-ups we've done, we're around the 80-gram mark, the total system mass, again, with wiring and connectors. Um, there's a little bit of um, leeway on that, on that assembled mass because, again, we're obsessed about the details, so we're stipulating what connectors we want to use. And um, the teams have their own preferences, you know, the, the mil spec like Deutsch connector or Limo connectors or, or Gecko, so that's kind of how we're how we're focused on it. Um, I'd say it's um, I think it's potentially the future. So potentially the future, but that as I say, now it's been used. It's sort of like history, I suppose you might call it. What's what's the next big step? Can you see something coming in the future that will uh, revolutionise this situation? Yeah, the, the exciting thing for us is as long as there's a push and pull between engineering and aesthetic design and the commercial teams, you know, 
we don't want it to get out of hand in one direction over another. So this whole system was developed so that it could be applied to one team. Uh, you know, we, we've worked with numerous teams over the years and um, I use Manor as an example because we were with them from, from day one all the way through to when they, when they ended them and it's a real soft spot. So for us, it's how do you help the teams that don't have large title partners um, monetize and, and stay in business? And, and for us, I think... That's, that's that would be my ideal future use for the technology obviously once you put it out there it kind of is its own um you know it's, it, it has its own direction but ultimately I, i'd really like to see it used to you know to help a team gain an advantage so you don't cover the whole car in branding you you pick your strategic areas that that bring in the best return for the team and ultimately what what i what we want is the the revenue you generate isn't used to offset any additional mass. It's a net positive. Now we can afford a bit more, um, you know, a bit more wind tunnel time or a bit more, you know, another person in the DO. Or uh, so for us, it has to be it has to be a push and pull. So it doesn't just become a you know a, a we don't want it to be like a garish sort of billboard, you know, driving around a, a racetrack. We want you know ultimately we, we want the teams to. You know, we want the racing to get closer, and we want it to be exciting. Like we're fans of the of the sport, and and not seeing teams, you know, leave the sport in, you know, in the sad way that um, that Manor had to leave. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what what our vision is, I think. Well, I've been around uh, Formula One in one way or another for now on fifty years. Um, very closely involved in the technical and engineering side for thirty, um, and this is one of the sort of the biggest steps, I suppose, that we'd see because. It's always been about getting the money in for the sponsor, uh, from and get get the sponsor, get the money in, and then the team can develop. And uh, so it's one of the biggest things I think a team can take advantage of. Do you, do you really see it? You've been able to sort of uh, go through the grid with this, or are you going to specialise in one team, or have you got you know exclusive contracts? So, uh, so yeah. Ultimately, we designed the system. We designed it to not be a one make system because. Uh, we didn't want it to be like a whole sport-wide thing because it's easy to get lazy then. You know, if we don't have to optimise for performance because everyone's got to have it mandated, um, that's not kind of how we we see it. Apart from anything, a strategic advantage is only an advantage if if you if you're using it and somebody else isn't using it. If everyone's using it, it kind of nullifies it. So yeah, I think ultimately we, we see it going, you know, you're getting used it, it 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 will you know will naturally appear on crash helmets in the not too in the not too distant future we you know all being well that'll be 2023 um we'll have branding on crash helmets um it won't be adopted by everyone because again i think there'll be it'll be whether it whether there's a requirement or a need for it uh, that's kind of how we've how we've developed it and how we envisage it happening within within Formula One, but you know the, the real, I mean the the reality is ultimately we're creating a, a creative platform for people to use. So it could be social media messaging, and it could be bigger teams using it to communicate with their fans or the like. We you know we've sort of steered clear of that now. We've we created a platform, and we'll we'll, we'll um, facilitate how the teams want to use it. Um, but yeah, I really hope it's used for performance and. You know, for for giving, for leveling a playing field in the in the sport and commercially leveling the playing field, like you said, it's it's in, you know the imperative thing is 
is you know you've got to bring in the money to be able to develop the car so that's kind of our ethos is through and through is do, doing that basically that's that's really what we've we've gone gone out and tried to tackle well, as we can see, the, the, the budget cap hasn't quite achieved that yet. Um, so good luck with your new technology and hopefully sure. it, it will bring the smaller teams up to compete with the bigger team. As I've always said, there's there's nothing like beating the big boys on a given day. So well done. Thanks very much for your time, Mark, and good luck for the future. No, thank you very much, Gary. It's nice talking to you. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, it would be great if you sent us a question. And if you're lucky, we might answer it on a future episode. You can email your question to podcasts at therace.com, either in written form or leave us a voice note that we can play in the episode if you prefer. And our question today is from George Bowen who says, I was listening to your most recent tech show podcast where a listener asked about an electronic reverse gear. This made me think F1 cars do not have handbrakes, as we know from Carlos Sainz's Ferrari in Austria 2022, but F1 cars do have a brake-by-wire system. So my question is, if F1 cars have a brake-by-wire system, does it mean you could make it so that when a driver presses a button in the interface of the steering wheel, it locks all four wheels so the car cannot roll down a slope? I don't believe this would add any weight to the cars as it's just something coded into the system a good question there gary and i particularly like it because it shows that the person asking the question was listening last week which is always good yeah it is uh, second game's not russell is it george <laughs> by any chance um no well george yeah thanks for the question um yeah going into it a little bit more um really the flyby wire brakes is only on the rear axle um the front axle is actually still um master cylinder hydraulic pressure uh 100 on the rear axle, there's a there's there's smaller brakes, um, and it's a combination of the pressure in the brake line and how much uh, electrical retardation you want to give. So first of all, it would it would be a handbrake. It would only be on the rear axle, which is fine because that's all you need. Um, the the big problem, I suppose, is that you know it doesn't happen in all cases. But if you stop and the brakes are quite hot, that you and you had to put the brakes on as we know them the brake pad against the disc then the heat transfer into that will be huge and the set the calipers could very easily get damaged the seals could very easily get damaged obviously the fluid can boil um so it would be a one-off hit where you put the brakes on and you 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 might have to rebuild the back of the car because of that um nothing's wrong with that but it might be better to have maybe a solution somewhere else where you had a handbrake that was electrically used. It wasn't used normally, and it was just a mechanical handbrake as such, which you could electrically engage to hold the car. But again, the regulations, for example, you you, you have to leave the car with the, the clutch disengaged or the car out of gear in the regulations. So they're, they're contradictory in a little way for, the, for themselves. Um, and the fact that the driver's not allowed to leave the car in gear which would stop it obviously running downhill or with any mechanism on it that stops it from being pushed. So it had to be a system where the marshals could release it once they got there, which is fine because it could be an electrical system where you can you know, have it on or off. Um, so there is a way to do it. I wouldn't like to do it as far as making it a fly-by-wire brake system engagement as we have now, but as a separate braking system, it's it's possible to do something very, very simply, I think, to, 
to have in there. It will add a little bit of weight, but probably not much more weight than the reverse gear or uh, you know things that you could do away with very quickly by having the uh, the electrical or the electronic electrical reverse system. So there's lots of things you know that <laughs> there's lots of things I think we should be doing. A huge amount of stuff that we should be doing and could be done. But um, as I think we know, we see we see a lot of problems that need fixing um, as the races go by, and maybe it's just better to leave well enough alone. You know, maybe each car should have to carry a, a chalk to put underneath the front wheel whenever you get out of it or something. But no, it's a, it's a good idea, but it needs to be looked at a little bit more. Uh, as I say, I wouldn't be happy with it if it was me. I wouldn't be happy with just applying the brakes because of the temperature and the damage it can do to the calipers and the and the sealing system, because it means you have to replace them completely after you get the car back, and that's just another job on top of the problem you've already got. And that Austria incident that was referenced in the question was quite a good example, because if people can't remember that one, Sainz had an engine failure, he pulled off on, on the left on the sort of runoff road by turn four, and the car was rolling back. In the end, the marshal did a very good job to kind of chock the car, but it wasn't especially safe what was going on there. So it's probably the kind of thing that's worth a, a serious consideration because you don't want a car rolling back onto the track or even you know the marshal did have to put a little bit of risk to himself in terms of doing that as well yeah no don't get me wrong i think it's a good idea um it's just not quite as simple as as just applying it with uh, you know the the software i think it, it needs to be looked at a bit carefully um to just make sure you do something that functions a and b that it can be driver and or marshal controlled the driver can chalk it if he wants to and the driver and the marshals then can release it whenever they get to the car to be able to push the car away so it just needs a little bit more thought it might take a little bit of a system on the you know one of the gear shafts or on the clutch shaft into the gearbox to, to have to put a, a small mechanical braking system on there not the end of the world and i'm sure it's it's very doable and that you know the weight disadvantage would be negligible if everybody had to have it it's the same for everybody so it doesn't really matter you know, if it weighs a kilogram, so be it. It's just a kilogram for everybody. So um, it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, we're getting all this standard equipment stuff that a company out there somewhere could very easily come up with a, you know, some sort of a magnetic um, locking device that just would hold the weight of the car. And, you know, um, every team has to fit the same sort of thing. So it's a, it's a thing that there's no performance advantage from. It's just a matter of making sure that those set of circumstances are catered for if uh, a driver does have to pull up on a on a hill. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a typical example. If you you know, if you had a problem through El Rouge, you know, you sit up there, what do you do? Yeah, you know, that's a typical example of where it could be really dangerous because the car does run down the hill and runs in in front of other cars coming through there. It's you know it's something that you don't want to happen, and the driver won't want to sit in the car for very long at El Rouge. You want to get out of it pretty quickly. Because there's other guys going to be steaming around there pretty quickly, so it has definitely has has merit to to look very deeply at for the future, um, along with the the electrical electronic reverse, um, you know, engine reverse or uh, battery reverse as such, instead of a mechanical reverse, because you know with that sort of thing, it's it sort of automatically does it. It doesn't have to sort of be mechanically engaged like the gear does, and you see how long it takes some of the teams to get to get there. You know, it's it, it's one of those sort of situations where it could happen much, much quicker. So both of them are very good ideas. Both of them need to be thought about deeply before they do it so that they actually function. But it's it's all it's all possible. 
Well, some ideas there for the FIA to put some thought into. And another great answer there, Gary. So to anyone who has a question to ask on any tech topic, make sure you get your questions in to podcasts at therace.com. As always, thanks very much to you, Gary, for your insight on all things F1 tech. There'll be more to come next week after the Mexican Grand Prix. So stay with us on the Race F1 Tech Podcast for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.